Hi, everybody. If we haven't met, my name's Terry Smith. I'm the lead pastor of the Live Christian Church, and I'm so glad that you're watching today. Wherever you're watching from, I'm so glad that you joined us. Uh, typically, I take time in the lobby after every one of our weekend services, and I meet as many people as I can. I love that. I miss doing that. But I hope to have an opportunity, if I haven't met you, to meet you soon right here when we can all come back together again. But I'm really happy to be able to speak to you today on Palm Sunday. So, it's almost impossible to find one word to describe this moment that we're living in. I have a word, but I need to use five words to give context to the word that I want to use. The first word is tragic. There is undoubtedly a tragic reality to this season of pandemic. We are in the middle of a world crisis, as you well know, that has brought fear and suffering and loss to people all over the world. And those of us who are blessed to live in the New York City metropolitan area, which I truly believe is the most wonderful place to live in the world, we're right in the epicenter of this pandemic. We have a woman on our staff team, for instance, who has had personal relationships with seven people who've passed away from COVID-19. This is a tragic moment. Then there are the hopeful realities of this moment. Something about facing the worst seems to bring out the best in so many people. And we've witnessed that in a variety of ways, including here at the Life Christian Church. Our Plus Life missions teams have been as active over the last couple of weeks as ever before in our history, trying to serve people in our communities in need. You'll notice on your screen an article from NewJersey.com talking about how our church was privileged to be able to open up the Teaneck Food Pantry this week after it had run out of food and its founder had tragically passed away from COVID-19. We have been able to join with our disaster relief partner, Convoy of Hope, uh, not only to serve that food pantry, but we are overseeing and executing the distribution of relief supplies uh, in communities all around us. Convoy of Hope actually delivered a tractor-trailer truck full of non-perishable food and relief supplies, and we are so grateful to be on the front lines of serving people in need. I'm proud of so many of our volunteers who are serving, so many of our people who are giving towards these efforts. So you see hope even in a tragic time like this. And then there's uncertainty. I think every leader, every small business owner, every parent is asking the question, how do I lead through something unlike anything any of us have ever dealt with before? I saw on Instagram this post by my friend Isaac Friedel. Isaac is a young pastor, great pastor, and a, and a wonderful father. Uh, yet he posted this. He's, he wrote, tough day. This is the third week of our quarantine and has by far been the hardest for our family. Lily and Judah are devastated with the fact that they are not going back to school. Personally, I kind of feel as a father I am struggling. I am totally not prepared for what we are facing, and today I feel like I am failing. As a pastor, 
I am feeling like I have no idea what I am doing. Should I be doing more or less prayer? Should I be more lighthearted or more serious? Because deep down the truth is I am confused. I know that God is with us and we're going to be okay, but that doesn't change how I'm feeling in the middle. He closed his post later by saying, it's okay to be discouraged. It's okay to be confused. It's okay to even be angry at what we are going through, but never forget to be thankful. So tragic, hopeful, uncertain, and then there is the banal. The banalities of this moment, something that is banal, of course, is something that's commonplace, trite, small in the big picture of this huge moment, human the banalities of being quarantined, being aggravated that you've watched all the good series on Netflix, or being disappointed that you can't go to your favorite restaurant or work out at the gym, or trying to figure out how to homeschool your children, your own children. By the way, my wife Sharon is having no small measure of fun with this. She homeschooled all three of our kids for at least half of their pre-college years, She's gotten a kick out of uh, people who acted when she was homeschooling like being a stay-at-home mom and homeschooling her children wasn't uh, actual work. The truth is, I think she wanted to dropkick people who intimated that, but she's way too sweet to ever say anything like that. But she's getting no small measure of revenge at this moment. Uh, She showed me uh, a Facebook post the other day uh, about a woman who's been homeschooling her kids over these last two weeks, just two weeks, and this this woman is outside on the driveway scraping a bumper sticker off of her minivan that says, my daughter is an excellent student. So there are the banalities. And then I think we should add the word triumph to this mix. We know, we know that by God's grace and help, we will triumph over this virus and its effects. We'll carry the scars of this time into the future, but we will triumph. So, one word that captures, at least for me, this mix of words that I've just offered is the word vicissitudinous. This is a vicissitudinous moment. Now, I might have trouble actually saying that word over the next few moments, but I think you'll understand why it came to mind while I was thinking about all of this this week. Now, please pardon my love of words, and trust me, this is all going somewhere important, but the word vicissitudes is a favorite of mine. Vicissitudes describe the radical ups and downs of life. The word is often used to describe an unwelcome downturn. We are on a wild roller coaster ride that at the present feels mostly downhill and difficult, and we're hanging on for dear life. We've been in a season of prosperity, up, and then we've plunged into a season of tragedy, down, and then there's hopefulness, up, and uncertainty, down, and the banal, kind of even, and in all of this, we still know that we will ultimately triumph, way up. This is a vicissitudinous moment. So, what a perfect time, for reasons I'm about to explain, to talk about Holy Week and Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday is the day some 2,000 years ago when Jesus entered Jerusalem and was welcomed by crowds celebrating him as Savior, Messiah, and King. 
Five days later, he was executed as a criminal. He then spent three days in the tomb, or at least his body did. While his body was lying in the tomb, his spirit descended into Hades and faced death and defeated death. And then he was raised from the dead. We call the eight days between Palm Sunday and Easter Holy Week. I want to suggest that Holy Week was a vicissitudinous week. It was a moment in time of radical ups and downs. Here's, what's, here's, here's what happened during Holy Week. All right, let me just give you an overview of the whole week. In fact, I'll start on Saturday night before Palm Sunday morning, so we'll make it nine days. On the Saturday night before Palm Sunday morning, Jesus and his disciples arrived in Bethany to stay with Jesus' friends, Lazarus and Mary and Martha. Martha cooked a, evidently a beautiful dinner. Mary poured an aromatic oil on the feet of Jesus as an act of worship and washed his feet with her hair. Scripture says that the room was filled with the smell of this spikenard, as it was called. That was Saturday night. Palm Sunday, Jesus has his triumphal entry down from, the, from, from Bethany to Bethpage, down the Mount of Olives, some two miles into Jerusalem. He's welcomed as king. He goes into the city. He surveys the temple. And then he returns back to Bethany to sleep that night. On Monday, Jesus goes back that same path to Jerusalem again. On the way, he curses a fig tree because it didn't have figs on it and he was hungry. Then he cleared the temple of the money changers when he entered Jerusalem. He performed some miracles. He had an argument with religious leaders in the courtyard of the temple. And then he returned back to Bethany where he slept. On Tuesday, he went back to Jerusalem. He debated again with religious leaders there. He taught in the temple. On his way back to Bethany, he stopped on the Mount of Olives, and he taught one of his most famous sermons on what we would call eschatology, the doctrine of the end times. Uh, Then on Wednesday, uh, this is actually a day that is called Silent Wednesday. Jesus and his disciples rested in Bethany at the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. But on Wednesday, that's when Judas left Bethany, went to Jerusalem, cut a deal with the religious leaders to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Then on Thursday, Jesus sent his disciples back to Jerusalem to prepare for the Passover. They did. Peter and John actually prepared the Passover meal. And then after sundown, Jesus and his disciples had what we call the Last Supper on that Passover evening. Jesus taught his disciples at great length what's called the upper room discourses. John's gospel assigns five chapters just to what he taught sitting there at the Last Supper. And from there... They went to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus prayed prayers so anguished that sweat uh, poured from his pores mixed with blood. And then on Friday now after midnight, Thursday now after midnight, Judas shows up in the garden. Jesus is arrested. And then Jesus is tried before the Jewish leaders. And then Jesus is tried before the Roman leaders. And then early on Friday morning, Jesus Christ is crucified. He hangs on the cross from about 9 o'clock in the morning until about 3 o'clock in the afternoon until he cries, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He dies. His body's taken off the cross, buried in a borrowed tomb. And then on Sunday morning early, Jesus Christ is raised bodily from 
the dead. This is quite an eventful week. It, it, I, I, I hope that you can see the vicissitudinous of this week. There's the hopefulness of Palm Sunday, the apparent tragedy of the cross, the uncertainty of his disciples. We're told on several occasions during that week that they were confused about what was going on. There's the triumph of the resurrection, and there's even the banal. The morning after Palm Sunday, Jesus was hungry, and he was on his way to Jerusalem. He went to a fig tree to get a fig and saw that it had no figs, and he cursed it. Matthew's gospel says it like this, early in the morning as Jesus was on his way back to the city, he was hungry. Seeing the fig tree by the road, he went up to it, but found nothing on it except leaves. Then he said to it, may you never bear fruit again. And immediately the tree withered. Why did Jesus curse the fig tree? Well, it appears to me that it was because he was hangry. He was hungry and it it seems he was ticked off that the fig tree didn't do what it was supposed to do and produce figs for someone to eat. Now, there are probably bigger theological reasons, but frankly, I don't don't know what they are. Just read the text. In the midst of this epic week, the man Jesus was upset that his favorite restaurant didn't deliver food to his door. I know that that's not actually what happened, but I hope you get the point. I love the raw humanity displayed even in the midst of the most important and vicissitudinous week of human history. Now, let's focus on Palm Sunday with this bigger picture in mind. I want to remind you of what happened on Palm Sunday and then make two observations that I think will powerfully help you during this time of crazy, radical ups and downs. So let me read a harmonized version from all four Gospels of the story of Palm Sunday. All right, before I do, I want you to look on the screen, and you're going to see something important to this whole story, and that is you're going to see a view from the Mount of Olives. Um, Holy Week Jesus kept going back and forth from Bethany over the Mount of Olives, down through the valley of Kidron, and into what we would now call Old City Jerusalem. Just a few weeks ago, Sharon and I hosted a group in Jerusalem, and we walked down that ancient road. Actually, we walked from the Mount of Olives down into the Garden of Gethsemane. And it's important to note that when you come over this rise on the Mount of Olives, you look down at Jerusalem. And it's quite an amazing sight. So here's what the Gospels tell us. As they approached to Jerusalem, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. Now, I'll pause a couple of times during this reading to make some quick points that are important. When Jesus secured this colt and rode it the way he did in Jerusalem, he was fulfilling centuries of prophecies all the way back to Abraham's grandson Jacob 1700 years before Christ Jacob had offered a specific prophecy about how the Messiah would come into Jerusalem just like this 500 years before Christ the prophet Zechariah offered a prophecy very specific to Jesus entering Jerusalem like this so this is important then we're told When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. 
Many people spread their cloaks on the road, sort of a red carpet, if you please, while others spread branches, palm branches. They had cut in the field. The palm branches were a symbol of victory in the Jewish mind in the first century for reasons I don't have time to explain right now. Those who went ahead and those who followed Jesus shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. A couple of points about this. First of all, this is the first time in the entire ministry of Jesus that he has allowed there to be a public demonstration on his behalf. So this is a big deal. And then it's important to note that he receives praise from this crowd that's gathered around him. He receives praise as God. Over recent weeks, we've been focused on the humanity of Jesus. We've been focused on the fact that he was God manifest in flesh. We focused on the fact he was a man. But this now is a powerful apologetic for his divinity. He receives praise as God would receive, receive praise. And you'll notice that through the rest of this story. And then notice as well that the crowd that's gathered around are shouting praises to him from a psalm. It's actually Psalm 118. It's a psalm of thanksgiving that was commonly read at the Passover. It was well known to people, uh, Jew, Jewish people at that time. Sure, they're shouting to him praises for, from a psalm, and they're worshiping him now as God. All right. Let's pick up the text again. Many people went out to meet him. The whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd, Jewish religious leaders, said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. Now, here's another thing I'll talk about in just a few moments. As he's receiving all of this tumultuous praise, he looks at Jerusalem and he weeps over it and says, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, speaking of himself, but now it is hidden from your eyes. At first, his disciples did not understand all of this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him. And then he enters Jerusalem, and from Matthew's account, it appears he goes into the temple, and he continues to receive praise now, but from children who are running around in the courtyard of the temple. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? But when the chief priests and teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. They said, Do you hear what these children are saying? To which Jesus replied, Yes. Have you ever read? And now he quotes from the eighth psalm in the second verse, from the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise. All right. Now let me start to try to make this relevant to our lives now. Because I think it is. I think it's powerfully relevant, okay? Two things to focus on in our vicissitudinous moment. Here's the first one. God is worthy of praise regardless of life's ups and downs. God 
is worthy of praise regardless of life's ups and downs. Now, some people may wonder what the big deal is about uh, the, the singing of praises in a church like ours. Why do we spend so much time singing songs of praise and leading people in worship? That was part of the question that the Pharisees asked, at least to some extent, on Palm Sunday. Luke 19 has them saying, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. It's kind of interesting to note that this idea of the stones crying out wasn't exactly a rhetorical response because the fact is that the need to praise God is so woven into nature that even nature itself praises God. The 148th Psalm has this, praise him, sun and moon, praise him, all you shining stars, praise him, you highest heavens, praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures and all ocean depths, lightning and hail, snow and clouds, you mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, wild animals and all cattle, small creatures and flying birds. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. Nature was designed to praise God, which means that it is natural for a human being to want to praise God as well. He wasn't kidding about the rocks crying out. We and every created thing were made to praise him. There's this text in the prophecy of Isaiah where God spoke of the people who he had formed for himself so that they might declare his praise. God said that he formed us for himself and that we should declare his praise. We were made to praise God. We connect with something very important to our basic purpose as human beings when we offer praises to God. So what exactly is praise? There's a great definition of praise I read years ago by Jack Taylor in a book called The Hallelujah Factor. I recommend it to you. It Uh, has praise defined like this. Praise is adoration of God that is vocal, audible, or visible. Praise is adoration of God that is vocal, audible, or visible. So when we talk about praise being vocal, we refer to the uh, nearly innumerable scriptures that call us to say praises or to sing praises. 71 of the 150 psalms actually command us to sing praises to God. A vocal praise would also be where Scripture calls us to shout praises. You see that kind of uh, a vocal praise that's happening on Palm Sunday when they're shouting loudly praises to God. And then praise can be audible. Uh, audible meaning, um, let's say, instrumentation. 
Uh, The Psalms are full of instruments being used to praise God. Uh, The the 150th Psalm, praise Him with the sounding of the trumpet, praise Him with the harp and lyre, praise Him with the tambourine and dancing, praise Him with the strings and flute, praise Him with the clash of cymbals, praise Him with resounding cymbals. See, it's not just contemporary Christianity who's made up this idea of a worship band. We may use more contemporary instruments, but, but part of praising God is adoring him in a way that is audible. Another example of audible praise would be the clapping of hands. Again, Scripture calls us to clap our hands to God uh, with some frequency. So praise is adoration of God that is vocal, audible, or visible. Now there's some praise that we can't hear, but we can see. A form of praise uh, that's common in Scripture uh, that's visible uh, but that we can't hear, for instance, is dancing. It's amazing how often, especially in the Psalms, people are called to dance before God. David, the greatest king of Israel, is famous for a dance that he offered to God as the, as the presence of God was coming into the city of Jerusalem. In fact, he danced so fervently and embarrassed his wife, and uh, they ended up having marriage problems over it. Really, truly, that's, that's, that's a fact. Another form of praise and worship that uh, uh, is not audible or vocal but visible would be kneeling. Another form of praise which is visible uh, but which you can't hear is giving. There are times in Scripture that when someone gave an offering, it was considered to be a praise that was offered to God. All right, so praise is adoration of God that is vocal, audible, or visible. So in the Palm Sunday story, they were praising Jesus in these ways, joyfully shouting with loud voices. And it's important to note that they were shouting the words of a psalm. Now, the reason that I say that is because the Psalms are the prayer and praise book of Scripture. It's no mistake that the Psalms make up the largest book in the Bible. It's as if God gave us this book and said, I made you to praise me, now here's how you praise me. If you want to learn the language of praise, I encourage you to read the Psalms and to say the words inspired by God in the Psalms that were given for us to praise Him. Say those words out loud and praise God in the ways that the Psalms call us to praise God. Well, here are some things that we learn about what happens when we praise God. These are things the Psalms tell us about what happens when we praise God in the ways that we have described. Here are several, and I think that this becomes relevant to the moment that we're living in right now. We're told in the Psalms that God is enthroned in the praises of his people. When we praise God, God is enthroned in our praises. Psalm 22 says, you are holy enthroned in the praises of Israel. Here's my question to you. Do you want God to act like God in this moment? He is enthroned in your praises. Now look, God is sitting on his throne in heaven far above this world, whether we praise him or not. But if we want God to be enthroned in our lives, to establish his rule in our lives, to come and cause his will in heaven to be done in our lives, in the way that it's done in heaven, then we need to understand that he is enthroned in our lives when we praise him. 
We're also told in the Psalms that God delights in us when we praise him. The 149th Psalm, let them praise his name with dancing and make music to him with timbrel and harp. For the Lord takes delight in his people. Do you want God to give you favor? Then praise him. He takes delight in his people when we praise him. Here's another thing that happens when we praise God. God is magnified when we praise him. I love this passage from the 35th Psalm. Let them shout for joy and be glad. And let them say continually, let the Lord be magnified who has pleasure in the prosperity of his servant. To magnify in this text literally means to make large. Now, God does not literally get larger when we praise him, of course, but he's magnified in our minds. He's magnified in our lives. When we, when we celebrate who he is, what he has done and what he can do, God, if you please, gets larger in the day-to-day realities of our lives. Do you see how you can make the challenges of this crisis get smaller to keep them from dominating your thoughts? Magnify God through praise. And then there's this. We're told that God establishes a stronghold against his enemies through our praise. So let's go back to the Palm Sunday story and then talk about how it relates to the Psalms. So uh, Matthew's gospel said that when the chief priest and teachers of the law and saw the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read? And now he quotes from the eighth Psalm and the second verse. From the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise. It's interesting when you read this Psalm Jesus quoted from on that Palm Sunday, it actually, when you finish it, goes like this. From the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise because of your enemies. To silence the foe and the the avenger. One translation of this says something to the effect of when we praise God, he establishes a stronghold against our enemies. Look, this is huge at this moment. We're facing a tremendous enemy. World leaders are calling the fight against this pandemic a war. The coronavirus and its effects on our lives is a great enemy. It needs to be fought physically and it needs to be fought spiritually. And spiritually, when we praise God, he establishes a stronghold against his and our enemies. He gives us strength to fight. He becomes strong and silences our foes and our avengers when we praise him. Which leads me to this and then a quick final thought. Praise is a spiritual discipline. Part of this is that when we praise God, we praise him regardless of circumstance or feelings. See, The New Testament teaches that praise is how we offer sacrifices. Praise is a spiritual sacrifice. The writer to the uh, Jewish believers in Jesus in the first century, the, the, the letter we call Hebrews, 
said that through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise. The fruit of lips that openly profess his name. Peter wrote to the church and wrote this, that you also are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Look, in the Old Testament, uh, as I'm sure you're aware, uh, in the temple system that was established by Moses, uh, sacrifices were in the form of animals offered. Uh, those were sacrifices. But in the New Testament, we offer a different sacrifice. We are our spiritual priesthood, and we offer spiritual sacrifices of praise. So uh, we need to understand then that part of praise is it cost us something. Praise cost us something. And part of it is this. We praise God regardless of whether we feel like praising God or not. Because we're offering a sacrifice of praise. It is, in this regard, a spiritual discipline. It's something we do because we're told to do it in Scripture. And there's a God benefit that comes when we actually do it. Now, right now, we may look at the world around us and see the tragic and fear the future. You may not feel like praising God in this moment. But here's the deal. Praise Him anyway. It's not about how you feel. It's about who He is. It's about what He's done. It's about what He can do. And as you offer up the sacrifice of praise to God continually, He will be enthroned in your praises. He will delight in your praises. He will be magnified in your praises. And He will fight our enemies through your praises. The disciples of Jesus praised him on Palm Sunday in spite of their uncertainties. That's part of the story. The Gospel of John speaks in specificity to the fact that his disciples were praising him, but they didn't know exactly what was going on. He wrote, at first his disciples did not understand all this. He had told them that he was going to suffer and die, that he was going to be raised from the dead, but they really didn't understand. They were in for a wild roller coaster ride. Palm Sunday was the beginning of a week of vicissitudes, hopeful, uncertain, banal, tragic, triumphant. But regardless of the vicissitudes, they had seen enough to know to praise him. And somehow they knew that he was the only one who could save them. So here's the second observation. And I'll make this real quick and then I'll offer the benediction. It's this. It makes sense to praise the one who can save us. It makes sense to praise the one who can save us. So talk about vicissitudes. In the midst of this praise festival on Palm Sunday, Jesus began to weep. He, he says, you know, in response to being criticized for accepting the praise of those around him, he said, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. And then we're told as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. 
Even as he was being praised, all he wanted to do was save. He looked to Jerusalem as he descended that Palm Sunday road, and he saw their future, and he saw war, and he saw destruction. But he knew that if they would only believe in him, that he could save them from all of that, that he would bring them peace. It's as if he was saying, even as they praised him, with tears flowing down his face, please just let me save you. I encourage us to think about that in terms of the crisis that our world is facing right now. Let's praise the one who wants to bring us peace and can. He didn't cause this pandemic, but he can save us from it. See, a miracle is a reversal of natural law. And what we're seeing happen right now is just the way the world is, as a result of the fall. But see, Jesus can work miracles. He can reverse the natural order of things. He can save us. Imagine this. As you praise him, he is looking at our broken world and weeping. He wants to save us. And then let me say this. If you've never confessed your faith in Jesus, this is your moment. It's your moment to recognize who he is. As Jesus was crying while this praise was going on, he said, if these people would have recognized me, I could have saved them. I encourage you, if you're someone who's become more interested in spiritual things, thinking about the magnitude of what's going on in the world, it's a normal thing to do. We start thinking about why we're here and what's going on and the bigger picture of life and, 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 and eternity. Listen, this is a good time to recognize Jesus. It's a good time to acknowledge who he is and that he came to save all of us. This is a time for people to confess their faith in Jesus and let him do what he came to do in our lives. I have two invitations today. First, if you've never confessed your faith in Jesus, you can do it now. Now, I've never given an invitation like this before, but there's a live prayer button under the chat box on the screen you're looking at right now. And you can click on that button, and a pastor will, will talk with you and help you know how to confess your faith in Jesus. In fact, it's possible that, that you could even arrange for a phone call so you can talk to a pastor uh, even now. You can confess your faith in Jesus right now. And then secondly, to all of us, I challenge you to spend time this week praising the one who can save us, even and especially if it's a sacrifice. God will meet you in your praise. Now I want to offer the benediction. First, I want to say to all of you who've joined us, I'm so glad again that you've joined us. To all of our TLCC members and regular attenders, I, I want to remind you that um, part of our covenant with God and one another is the, is the, is the consistent practice of, of tithing and giving. And I want to remind you the only way that our church can fulfill its mission is for you to keep that promise to God and that promise to 
all of us as a church community. I encourage you, if you haven't learned how to give online, uh, to know that you can call our financial office and someone on our finance team under the direction of Kevin McCollum would be happy to help you learn how to give online or make it possible uh, for you to give by sending you envelopes or whatever. Now, this is an important conversation at this moment. And then to all of you who've been giving, regular giving online, thank you for your faithfulness and your generosity. I encourage you and bless you in your tithing and giving. Now, wherever you are, I want to say today's benediction. And then you're going to hear a little bit more of this song about how we can praise God and how God came to save us. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord be gracious to you and make his face shine upon you and give you peace. I pray this week will be a week of praise in your life. I pray that you will intentionally spend time saying words of praise to God, reading the Psalms, and connecting to God in the way that we can only connect to Him through praise. And I pray that each of us will take the next step toward living the life God dreamed for us, that we would hear and receive the words of Jesus in John chapter 10, verse 10, where he promised us life in all of its fullness, more and better life than we ever dreamed of. May we each live the life God dreamed for us. In Jesus' name, amen.